0: Um, I'll be in Judges 19, chapters 22 through 30, and that's page 219 in the Bibles around the room. Um, I'm going to read the scripture, and when I'm done, I'll say, this is a reading of God's Word, and you'll respond by saying, thanks be to God. And we respond that way because we are thankful that um, God will speak today. This passage is um, rough. It was hard for me to get through in the first service, so um, just bear with me if it goes bad again. Um, Judges 19, verse 22. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the Med would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her. All night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning. And when he opened the door of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her, limb by limb into twelve pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray, church. Lord, hear our prayer. God, we cry out to you today. You are our king. Humble us, Lord, to reflect your righteousness. Help us to live in the truth that we are created to serve and worship you. Apart from you, God, we are vile and wicked. Apart from you, God, nothing we do is good. Lead us, Lord, so that we do not do what is right in our own eyes. Instead, help us to seek out what is good in the sight of the Lord. God, I pray you center our hearts and minds on your word today. Bless Pastor Matt as he moves through your message. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.
1: We've been going through the book of Judges, and we've depicted it as a downward spiral into darkness. And today we find ourselves basically in the pit. Um, As you heard from the text that we read this morning, um, it's not going to be the most pleasant of sermons. Uh, And it's not something that we want to take lightly. We believe that God has given us his word for instruction, for encouragement, um, and so hopefully today you can leave encouraged, because I believe that this text accomplishes exactly what its purpose is, and that's to show us that we need a king. And so that's going to be my main point this morning. And uh, there's this uniting verse for all of these chapters that we're going to look at, because we're going to look at chapter 19 through chapter 21. And this uniting verse comes at the end of chapter 21, and it's this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, I don't want to make light of this, but I think we all could use a laugh. And uh, um, so as we get into this, when I was thinking about this verse and really what's going on in these texts, um, you know, it made me think of my kids. And if you have kids, you kind of, Might understand this a little bit, but uh, um, yesterday I got to spend time at Mendive Middle School, and uh, Mendive was where we started Livingstone's. Well, it's not where we started, but we spent a lot of time um, at Livingstone Sparks at Mendive Middle School several years ago. And at that point in time, my kids were little kids. And I remember one day walking out of Mendive Middle School, and you may have been there, um, and my kid was peeing on the bush right outside the door. And, like, I was just appalled. I was like, what are you doing? That's not what you do. You can't pee right there. And so, but what my kid was doing was what was right in his own eyes. And that's really what the nation of Israel is doing, is what's right in their own eyes. Now, I instructed my kids to not do that, but if I didn't, they'd still be peeing on trees out in front of the church here. <laughs> they needed somebody to set them straight. And we see here in, verse, in chapters 19 through 21 that Israel needs someone to set them straight. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. Um. We find ourselves at the end of the book of Judges. And so if you've been here, you know that this series has been kind of a bumpy ride. And this is definitely the worst. Um, But we've seen the people of Israel become more and more like the people that are surrounding them. More and more like the people of the world around them. For the majority of the book of Judges, we've been able to look at the leaders of Israel and their spiritual decline and their moral decline. But in these last two stories, in chapters 17 and 18, we saw um, the spiritual decay of the people of Israel. And this morning in, verses, in chapters 19 through 21, we're going to really get to look at the moral decay of the people of Israel. And like I said, we're going through chapters 19 through 21, and it's, it's got all of this stuff in it. It's got sexual slavery, assault, rape, murder, religiosity, vengeance, genocide, and human trafficking, all within these three chapters. All these things were just as heinous then as they are today. And we'll see from this text that we are in desperate need of a king. So what I'm going to do this morning, I'm going to try and break it down like this. We're going to look at the story from these three chapters. Then we're going to highlight the sin in these three chapters. And then finally, we're gonna come to the solution for the sin in the person and work of Jesus. So bear with me as we go through here because this does end with good news, but to get to the good news, we have to make our way through all the bad. So starting in chapter 19, I'm gonna try and just break down what's happening for us, so that way it sets the stage for the rest of what we will talk about this morning. And so we start with a Levite. And a Levite was somebody who represented God um, to the people. He was one of the, the tribes of who the priests came from. And so we see this man, he took for himself a concubine. And his concubine was unfaithful, which means, or it's been debated on, that she either had an extramarital affair or that she was just unsatisfied or angry with the position that she found herself in, and she left um, the Levite and returned to her father's house. And so about four months later, the Levite goes looking for his concubine. He finds her at her father's house, and when he arrives there, he's received into his father-in-law's house. And the custom was in the Middle East at this point in time, that um, if a sojourner was traveling, that you were to receive them in your home for three days. And what we see here with this father-in-law is that he goes above and beyond the cultural standard, and he shows great hospitality to this Levite, and he brings him in for five days. And uh, in the middle of the, the fifth day, the man has had Enough. Now, some people might go, why why did this man even show this much hospitality to him? Um, There is an element that this family was receiving shame because his daughter had left this man who she was, uh, I guess you could say, married to. Um, And so the father-in-law was trying to um, do good deeds and earn back favor with this man, but by the middle of the fifth day, he'd had enough. And so he takes his servant he takes his concubine, he takes his donkeys, and they get out of there. And so they're in Bethlehem. They're trying to get to Bethel. And uh, it's really a day's journey, but they're leaving in the afternoon, so they're not going to make it there by nightfall. And so on their journey, they're going to have to find a place to stay. And so they come to Jerusalem. And at this point in time, it's called Jebus because the Jebusites were still living there. So this was still a foreign city. It wasn't an Israelite city at this point in time. And the servant suggests that they should stay the night there. But the Levite doesn't want to stay with foreigners. And what I find interesting about this is that the Levite is willing to uphold the law of God in some areas and not staying with foreigners, but not uphold the law of God in other areas by taking for himself a concubine. And I think that we as a people, we find ourselves in that place at times where we want to pick and choose what we read in the Bible that we, we want to obey and that we don't want to obey. And so they don't stay in, in, in Jerusalem. And as they go, they're entering into the country of Benjamin. And the next city that they come to is Gibeah. And so they go into Gibeah. And when they enter the city, it's drastically different from the account that we just had with this man in Bethlehem. see, he received excessive hospitality in Bethlehem. In Gibeah, he receives zero hospitality. No one is there to take them in. And so they get ready to spend the night in the city square. But finally, in verse 16, we read that an old man was coming from his work uh, in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim. So he was sojourning here. He wasn't a Benjamite, but he was living amongst the Benjamites in in the city of Gibeah. And when he sees this man and his company with him, uh, he approaches them. They have this conversation. He asks them where he's going, where he's been. And uh, the man basically puts out, hey, I have a need. I I need somewhere to stay. I don't need your food, because I've got my own. I don't need your wine, because I've got my own. I don't even need food for my animals, because I've already got it. I just need a place to sleep. So he's not asking for a ton when you think about how they were expected to take them in and provide for all of their needs. And if you look at verse 20, here's what the the old man says. He says, peace be to you. I will care for all your wants only do not spend the night in the square. And so this old man brings in this Levite. And now at this point in time, this man trying to sleep in the square with the, the this person bringing him in. Um, we have this kind of foreshadowing of the danger that might be expected there in Gibeah. But we also have this cast the this. Um, we're, our memory should be cast back to Genesis 19. And if you're an Israelite, you, you would have recognized this. It's very similar to the story of Lot in Sodom. And, and as we go through this, we're going to see even more shocking are the parallels between what happens here in Gibeah and what happens in Genesis 19 in Sodom. So in verse 22, the text that we read um. It was horrific. Uh, Casey, she was telling me in between services, she's like, I'm going to try not to cry when I read it this service. Because last service she cried when she was reading it because it is meant to evoke that kind of emotion from us. Because this is something that should never be. And so we read in verse 22. That men of the city gather around this house. They're banging on the the walls of the house, demanding that this Levite be given to them, that they might sexually assault him and rape him. And the man of the house, um, he he wants nothing to do this. He says, "No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man is coming to my house, do not do this vile thing, because." As he's brought this man in his house, he's supposed to protect that man. That's part of the hospitality that he's supposed to show him. But instead, he offers up his virgin daughter and this man's concubine to be raped and assaulted by these men. And so this is just like what happened in Genesis 19 in Sodom. Lot invites in these two strangers, which we know are angels from reading the text, They were going to stay in the square, but he's like, no, that's not the place to stay because of how horrible the men of the city are. And they come banging on his door and they basically demand the same thing. We want to have those men that we might rape and assault all night long. And Lot does just like what this man does. He offers up his two virgin daughters. But in the case of what happens in Sodom, those men are angels and they prevent this wickedness from happening. Here, that's not what happens. Instead, these men want nothing to do with the girls that are offered to them. They want the man. But when they won't relent, when they won't stop demanding for for this man to be given to them, the Levite takes his own concubine and forces her out of the house, basically feeding her to the wolves to be raped and abused all night long. And when we get to verse 27, I think the most appalling part of this is this Levite. He could care less for this concubine. He tosses her out like she's a piece of trash. And he goes to bed. And in the morning, he he gets up and he's preparing to leave whether she's with him or not. And when he opens the door and finds her there, he says to her, get up, let's go. How callous. It's sickening what we read here. When she doesn't respond, he puts her on his donkey, he heads home. Never once do we see him caring for her, trying to seek for her protection or her good. He's trying to get exactly what he wants out of this. And what he does is he chops her up into 12 pieces and sends each piece to a different tribe of Israel. And this is a practice that was um, found amongst the pagans in the region. And we also see um, King Saul using this in, in, in 1 Samuel 11, but it's a way to get attention. And that's exactly what happened. So let's read verse 30 again. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. This is the most horrible account that's recorded in the pages of scripture. But it gets worse. This Levite, he got the the message across. He wanted to get their attention They come running. The nation of Israel gathers together at Mizpah, 400,000 of them, because they want to know what happened and they want to bring about justice because of this horrible act that has happened. And so look at verse four of chapter 20. It says, and the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered. And when I say husband, I'm gonna, Put it in quotes because he definitely didn't act like her husband. He answered and said, So they're trying to figure out what went on. What do we need to do? And so here's his side of the story I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. Notice how he conveniently leaves out any part that he plays in this tragic event. As a people, we have this tendency to do the same thing. We want to make ourselves look better than what we are. We want to creatively edit history in our favor. And so because of his account, the people of Israel are enraged. They want justice and they make an oath that none of us are going to go home until justice is brought. And that's how they should react to this situation. When we hear of something this tragic and this horrible, that should be the emotion that wells up in us. We want justice for what has happened because it's an outrage. It's an abomination. And so these 400,000 men of Israel, they send diplomats to the tribe of Benjamin. They're asking for them to hand over the evildoers, so that they might be put to death and purge the evil from Israel. But the Benjamites, instead of handing over these men who they know have done wrong, they stand with them. They muster their own army of 26,700 men. And so now for the second time as a result of a rape in the nation of Israel, they're facing civil war. But I think it's ironic that verse 13 of chapter 20, it says, Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. You see, they thought that only the men of Gibeah were guilty of committing evil against God. But from our verse 21, chapter 21, verse 5, we know that all of these men were doing what was right in their own eyes, which means that they were all doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord, not just the men of Benjamin, not just the heinous, horrible wrongdoers, but even them, they were guilty of committing evil against God. And so if you wanted to purge evil from the nation of Israel, they all should be put to death. And so, starting in verse 18, we see the beginnings of war. And in verse 18, let's read it together. It says, the people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God. How shall we go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? Notice, they come to God and they don't ask God, hey, should we go to war with our brothers? They don't ask God for guidance in this. They ask God to basically work within the plan that they have already devised. And I know that I get like that. I have my idea of what should happen. I'm like, God, so how are we gonna do this? Not God, what should we do? And so the Lord says that Judah should go up first. And so from verses 19 to 47, we have the account of this battle. Day one, Israel goes up to fight against Benjamin. They get whooped. 22,000 men of Israel die that day. They're confused. They're like, well, didn't God say Judah should go up again? They're not recognizing their own guilt in this. Day two, they go up again. 18,000 men of Israel die. And now it looks like they've got this figured out. They're finally gonna come to God and say, God, should we really be doing this? And God says, okay, go up. Tomorrow I'll give them into your hands. And that's exactly what happens. They've got this great plan. You can read about it um, in verses 29 through 47. It works out. They have victory over the Benjamites, and they slaughter all but sixteen all but six hundred of these men of Benjamin who come out to war against them. But it gets worse. In verse 48, read it with me. It says, And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword. The city, men, and beasts, and all that they found, and all the towns that they found, they set on fire. The nation of Israel didn't just put to death those men who were warring against them, but they put to death the men, the women, the children, and even the animals of the people of Benjamin. This isn't justice anymore. This is genocide. And now we get to 21. And if this wasn't so tragic, it would kind of be humorous. Because in 21, they now ask, God, why did you let this happen? Why is it that there's only 600 men of Benjamin left, God? You're leaving us without one of our tribes. Never once are they admitting to their wrongdoing in this whole situation. And in 21, instead of just one one woman being assaulted, we get the assault of 600 women that's condoned by the nation of Israel. It's part of their plan. And it's disgusting. So there's 600 men of Benjamin left. Well, the nation of Israel, they made this oath. We're not going to give any of our daughters to be their wives. And anybody that didn't come up with us to kill the men of Benjamin, they need to be put to death as well. And so they're going to use both aspects of their oath here to justify some more horrific behavior. So the first one, they discover that the men of Jabesh-Gilead didn't come up to fight against the Benjamites. So what do they do? They take 12,000 of their bravest men and they command them to go kill every man woman and child, except for the virgin daughters of the city of Jabesh-Gilead, and we're gonna give those ladies to be the wives of the men of Benjamin. And that's exactly what happens. And then read verse 13 with me, chapter 21, it says, then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin who were at the Rock of Rimen and proclaimed peace to them. Last they knew that these people wanted to kill them. And now they're saying, oh, Let's have peace. Not only that, why don't you return home and we got 400 wives for you. What a horrible housewarming present, right? Like what has to happen to these people to realize that what they're doing is sick and twisted. And what they realize is they don't have enough brides for these men of Benjamin. And their oath was keeping them from finding more. Brides for the men of Benjamin, because they couldn't give their daughters to marry them, and so this is all happening in the city of Shiloh. And at the city of Shiloh, there's this—it um, might be a pagan festival, but it's some sort of tradition that happens where the daughters of the city of Shiloh they go out and they dance in the virgin or dance in the vineyards. And so, what um, the nation of Israel. instructs the Benjamites to do is to lie in wait for those daughters to come out dancing and then kidnap them and take them to be their wives. And they're saying this to men who were dads of these girls in the city of Shiloh and they've got no problem with this. I'm sorry, but I've got a daughter. I got serious problems with this. I'm going to war against other people over my daughter's life. And these men, they willingly give up their daughters. And they say that there will be no charges brought against them because they have to keep their oath. And that's where the story ends. In verse 25, in those days... There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. All of this tragedy is a result of the nation of Israel doing what was right in their own eyes. So that's the story. Now we want to look at the sin within the story. You see, doing what's right in our own eyes is the definition of sin. And it's far from lacking in this account. I'm only going to spend time talking about a couple of things. I mentioned a bunch of them. But we're going to start back at the beginning. So this Levite, he took for himself a concubine. So this is a practice that's never promoted or encouraged by God in Scripture. It's something, however, that the nations around them are doing, and so it's something they adopted, and the people of God began practicing this throughout the ages. But from the beginning, we see that marriage was intended to be between a man and a woman, between one man and one woman, to cherish, to love, to nurture. A concubine, though, by definition, was a sexual slave who carried a status lower than that of life. So when it calls this man her husband, that's probably a term that's being used loosely. It also refers to him as her master, because that's really the way that she was seen was as his property. So this Levite, the people who stood with God at Mount Sinai and who are now supposed to be pointing people to God, he's completely disregarded God's order. He's accepted the cultural view of sex and marriage that was held by the Canaanites. And now this might not seem like something that we as a church struggle with, or that maybe even many people in our culture are practicing. But when we boil it down, what's happening is that this woman is being degraded, devalued, and dehumanized to the point where she's seen as an object for mere sexual pleasure. And when we think of it like that, we can point out things in our culture that do the same exact thing. Strip clubs, prostitution, pornography. And these aren't things that just people outside of the walls of the church struggle with, but those are things that people inside these walls struggle with as well. And you might not be somebody that's going to strip clubs or watching pornography or visiting prostitutes. But we can still promote these ideas just in the way that we view women in our society. And in this text, we see that it's specifically a man doing this to a woman, but this can happen the other way. Women can do this to men as well. And what we need to realize is that people are not things. The Bible is clear that God created man and woman in his image. And in the New Testament, we're reminded of this when we read that in Christ, there is neither male or female, but all are one through the gospel of Jesus. And so we should never objectify other people, because that's not giving them the value that they deserve from God. But when we start to look at people like this, when we start to objectify them, male or female, it leads into that next sin that we see, which is sexual abuse and rape. And as we read this, it's tragic. But it's even more tragic that there are many people in this room who have gone through and suffered and been victims of sexual abuse and rape. It's something that never should be. But the reality is, is that it's happening all the time. Statistics say that every 98 seconds, an American is sexually assaulted. Like, think about that. I've been preaching for 30 minutes. And every minute and a half of that, somebody has been sexually assaulted in our country. Because we do what's right in our own eyes, countless men, women, boys and girls have become victims of sexual abuse. And it's not just something that happens outside of these walls again, but the the evangelical world has been rocked with sexual abuse scandals as of late. As a church, I want to make clear this what the Bible makes abundantly clear in Deuteronomy chapter 22, and that is that those perpetrators of sexual assault and rape deserve to be punished. But the victims, it states that they are to be protected from all recourse, that they are to be neither shunned or shamed. The biblical view of justice centers on the restoration of the victim. If something was taken from them, then it was to be repaid plus some. But in cases of rape and murder, you can never repay what has been taken away. And that is why the Bible calls for the death of these perpetrators, for the death of these men in Gibeah that we read about here in chapter 19. And so seeking justice and wanting that is exactly what the nation of Israel does. But because the Levite shares only part of the truth, he's not included in that group. You see, when we look at this Levite and he creatively edits his story so that he bears no responsibility in this. And in that we see his sin of self-righteousness where he wants to present himself better than he is when deep down we know that he is just as guilty as these men who outwardly were sinning against this woman. It makes me think back to the book of Romans that we went through not too long ago. And in the beginning of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul takes three chapters to point out that whether you're sinning outwardly and overtly, or whether your sin is inward and covert, that we're all still under sin, and that none of us is righteous, not even one. And that's why when we look at this, it should point to the fact that we all need a king. We all are in need of a king. Now I could go on. There's talks of homosexuality. There's talks of vengeance. There's talks of kidnapping and murder and human trafficking. But all of this is encompassed under this one saying that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is the root of sin. Not just these heinous things that we read about here, but the things that you and I do on a daily basis. Whenever we're doing what's right in our own eyes, we're being just like this people of Israel. And you might be like, that's not me. I've never done any of that stuff. But I can tell you this, that God views you the same way. And so as dark and disgusting as this is, that's the nature of our hearts as well because we do what's right in our own eyes. It looks like things as simple as how we view entertainment, how we spend our money, the things that we choose to consume, how we look at other people, how we treat them. Because in some of those areas, we are all doing what's right in our own eyes. And so we're all in this place where, where we need a solution. And so before we move on, the most sobering part about this that continues to point to the fact that it, this is us as well, is that not a single person, well actually there's one person in the story who's actually named. There's one person in the story who's named. In chapter 20 verse 28, we're given the name of the high priest at that day was Phineas. But everyone else remains nameless. And what the author's doing by not giving names to anyone else is one He's generalizing this whole account. And what I mean by that is that this account is representative of all of Israel. The state of darkness, the depth of sin has made its way through the entire nation. No one, not even the Levites were exempt. And that should be a sobering fact for us because neither are we exempt from these things happening in our lives or on our watch. And then the second thing that this name does is it puts the story in time for us. We're told that Phinehas was the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron. Aaron is the brother of Moses. So Phinehas is the grandson of Aaron. And what that means, if you're not familiar with the biblical account, is that these things happened Two generations after the exodus. Two generations after God freed his people from slavery and performed miracles to get them out of Egypt and gave them food every day and met with them on a mountain and gave them his law that was written by his own finger. Two generations after that, this is what's happening. And for me, the sobering part is to think that as one of the people that was here at this church from the beginning, that in two generations, when my grandkids might be old enough to be the leaders of this church, this is how they would be acting. That's terrifying. But this comes back to all of us because we all are in the place where we all need a solution. And our solution is that we need a king. But not just any king will do. We've looked at some pretty horrible kings. We've, we can look at history and see kings that are ruling with iron fists, dictators doing horrible things. We can look at the Bible and we see that there are kings who are murderers and adulterers, kings who had hundreds of concubines, kings who promoted the worship of false gods. Those aren't the kings that we need. We need a king who won't just rule politically. We need a king who has the power to take care of this problem of sin. Not just for a moment, but forever. We need a king who is eternal in his salvation, leading us into life everlasting and an eternal kingdom. The king that we need is Jesus. Jesus. You see, he's the solution to our sin because he is completely other than what our sin is. If we look back just at what we've seen in this text, some of the adjectives, some of the things we've talked about, we see that sin compromises what we know to be right. But Jesus always did what was right. Sin is selfish, but Jesus is selfless. Sin degrades, devalues, and dehumanizes but Jesus affirms the value of every life. Sin is callous and cruel but Jesus is kind and compassionate. Sin promotes the self but Jesus humbles himself. Sin fractures and divides but Jesus unites and heals. Ultimately, sin brings death, but Jesus brings life. You see, Jesus took all of this darkness on him on the cross. That's why we put that spiral on the cross because Jesus is bearing it all. And Jesus' death on the cross doesn't just mean that we can be forgiven for the sins that we have committed, but he also removes the stain of the sins that have been committed against us, and he makes us brand new. This is the darkest account in the whole Bible. And you might be wondering, where is God in all of this? Well, this account is just right in the middle of God's story of redemptive history. And this book has done exactly what it's meant to do. And it's point to the fact that we need a king. And in the very next book, the book of Ruth, God begins to unveil his plan for bringing his son to be our king. his son would come and live a perfect life on our behalf and be our perfect sacrifice in our place. And so if you're here this morning and you're wondering where God is, look to the cross. Peter talks about how God is calling us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And Jesus is that marvelous light. And if you've never put your faith in him, then this morning, that's the call. Run to the cross, run into that marvelous light and be healed. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, there's a call for us to examine ourselves. How are we living according to what's right in our own eyes? How are we living in ways that are no different than this world? It doesn't have to be the big sins but any little sin which we're putting our values and what we desire above God's, we need to repent of. Because none of us wants to be that kid that's still peeing on a tree out in front of church, right? (laughs) Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your texts. We thank you that as tragic and horrible and heinous as it is that it accomplishes that purpose of pointing us to you, Jesus. May we see you as that marvelous light and may we come running. Help us to be a people that doesn't forget you, God, but that clings to you, that leans on you, that does what's right in your sight and not our own, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.